Well, let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Last week, we took a look at Genesis chapter 1, where we began to study the biblical account of creation. And we focused heavily last Sunday on the first five words of Genesis 1, where it says, In the beginning, God created. And we talked about how if we remove this fact from our everyday lives, the fact that there is a God that created all that is, then we can also remove our responsibility to be a people of reverence, a people of worship, a people of decency and morality, if we just remove the fact that in the beginning God created. Because without recognizing the God of creation, we are then free to be led by our flesh and to do whatever we want, whenever we want. And unfortunately, today our world is a, is a portrait of this. It's a portrait of moral decay. And not many people have too much concern for living in obedience to the God of all the universe, the Creator. Not too many people care too much about that nowadays. So the words in the beginning God created are extremely crucial words that must be taught to our children in our homes and they're words that must be etched in our hearts as well so that we are a people of reverence. You see, the world around us will do all that it can to define who we are and also define who our children are and what our children become if we don't keep that fact in focus that there is a God of all creation that wants to speak to us, that wants us to know Him, right? Things like movies and music and fashion and marketing and all of these things seek to define us and to mold us and to shape us, to influence our lives in, in such a way that, you know, we're, we're taken in by it. But when we look to the Bible, the Word of God, we find that there's a completely different way to live. There's a way that God defines for us to live. We find that there is a God whom in the beginning created all that is, and that he has a grand plan for all of mankind, but his, but his plan for mankind requires submission and obedience. Therefore, mankind wants nothing to do with them because they don't like that whole submission part. And that whole obedience part. They don't like the whole part where the Bible says what the gospel preaches is that we are to die to ourselves. We are to take up the cross. We are to become followers of Jesus Christ, right? See, we are prone to sin. We are prone to disobedience. And all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible declares that about every one of us. But of course, we know that God himself provided a solution to sin. And you'll find that we find that as we dig deeper into the Bible, don't we? But today we'll continue on in our study of Genesis, the book of beginnings, and we pick it up this morning here in chapter 2 and verse 1, where it says, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. Now, I don't know if you notice, but there hasn't been any land added to the earth for a very long time, right? Verse 1 here, we're told that, that God finished all creation. 
We know that man has, of course, been able to make many things, but man is never able to make anything without the ingredients that come from what God has already made, right? So it all goes back to God. Nothing else has been created, right? We know, again, we know that man has some ingenuity and we can invent, invent things, but we have to use what God has already created in order to do that. So the work of creation was finished here, and it all comes from God, right? Then verse 2 tells us, And on the seventh day God ended His work which He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it He rested from all His work which God had created and made. So, do you see the word rested there in verses 2 and 3? That is the Hebrew word Shabbat, right? Of course, it's where we get our word Sabbath from. However, very simply, it is a word that just means to cease and desist. What we are seeing being said here is that God stopped the work of all creation. He ceased and desist from that because it was done. It was finished. There was nothing left to do as far as creation goes. And this was a blessed day and God sanctified this day because the work of this awesome creation was completed. God did not need to rest as we understand the word rest because he was not tired or does not get tired as we get tired. There are two other Hebrew words used in the Old uh, Testament to denote rest. But this word here simply means to cease and desist. Now, we will expound later on in our studies of the, Old, you know, the Old Testament as we continue through the Old Testament. We'll talk more about the Sabbath day. And we will also see that we are not required by law to keep the Sabbath today. As Christians, we enter into our rest in Jesus Christ, right? Jesus fulfilled the purpose and the plan of the Sabbath day for us. He did that for us. So we are now to enter into the rest that Jesus accomplished for us. Now, I'm not going to go into all of that at this point in time, but if you'd like, I suggest that you read Colossians chapter 2, Galatians chapter 4, and Hebrews chapter 4 as it pertains to what the Sabbath means to us today. That's Colossians 2, Galatians uh, 4, and Hebrews chapter 4. Again, we'll study that further in the future, but if you want to look into that now as to what the Sabbath means to us today. But what we simply see here is that God's work of creation has ceased. And verse 4 continues and says, This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. So what all of this is saying to us here is this is the time period that God did the work of creation. Okay? We're talking about this point in time. And verse 4 tells us that. It says, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Okay? Now, as we read this, right, this is as much as God wanted us to know right here from this writing as it pertains to the things of heaven and the things of earth and when they were created. Okay? But now we come 
to an important part. And I'm going to move on into this because we come to you and me now. Now, I said that last week when we looked at Genesis chapter 1, 26, where it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And at that point in time, I said, Now we're going to talk about us, right? Mankind. But now we're going to see a little more detail about the creation of man here. We know that we were created in the image of God, and we also know that God is a spirit. We talked about that last week. So we too are to be spiritual people, but now we will take a look at our physical formation. And verse 7 here tells us, and the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground. So stop right there because that's another part of who we are. We are first spiritual beings created in the image of God. And then secondly, we are physical beings having been formed out of the dust of the ground. Okay? So it's important that we understand who we are. Again, created in the image of God, but also formed of the dust in this physical body. The man Job, in Job chapter 4, he said, Can a mortal be more righteous than God. You see, Job understood who he was in this life. He understood that he was nothing. He understood that God was everything. And he said, can a man be more righteous than God? Can a, can a man be more pure than his maker? Job said. He said, if God puts no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is the dust? So yes, it's important that we understand who we are spiritually created in the image of God, but it's also, it's also important that we understand that we don't think too highly of ourselves in this body of dust that we're now in. So Job was saying that he understands he's less than God and that he has to be reliant upon God. These bodies of ours are dust and to the dust they will return someday. We are houses of clay, as Job called it. We are spiritually made to worship God, but again, not to think too highly of ourselves in this house of clay we now dwell in. Let's turn for a moment to the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 30. Of course, you'll find Psalms around the middle of your Bible. Psalm chapter 30. And let's start reading in verse 1. Psalm 30, verse 1. A psalm, a song at the dedication of the house of David. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried out to you and you healed me. O Lord, you brought my soul up from the grave. You have kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. Sing praise to the Lord, you saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. So what we see David doing here in this psalm is simply remembering God and exhorting us in this writing to do the same. David remembers all that God had brought him through in this life. Yes, there are times of sorrow, but God is our help 
in this life. He goes on in verse 6, though, and he says, Now in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face and I was troubled. So David recognizes here that the times of favor that he did have in this life were to the glory of God. Because as soon as David couldn't see God's face anymore, like he says, as soon as he couldn't see God in his life, he was troubled. So he's recognizing the fact that he needs God and that he needs to praise God and that, the God, and that God is his rock, right? Verse 8 says, I cried out to you, O Lord, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your truth? We obviously know the answer to those questions is no. But David here understands that in his own strength, he can do nothing. He realizes that he is formed of the dust and that when he returns to the dust, that the body in which he indwells now, when he was alive, he needed to praise God now. And we too need to recognize that fact that this body is not all there is. There's more to this life than what this world tries to sell us on, than what the marketing tries to sell us on and all that. This life is about spiritually who we are, praising God and realizing that in this, in this jar of clay, this house of clay that we're in right now, it's just temporary. Okay? And the reason I point this out so heavily is it's so easy to get that out of focus, isn't it? It's so easy to, to become so focused on who we are as a body, you know, this, this person, right? And, and not really care about praising God and worshiping God and placing a high priority on God in our lives. I know I quote the verse all the time, but Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. That's the priority. That needs to be the priority in our lives, okay? So in understanding his weakness and understanding that he is of the dust, he cries out to God and he says in verse 10, Hear, O Lord, and have mercy on me. Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness to the end that my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. So he adjusted his focus here. He adjusted his focus to be right, to be what it should be in glorifying God and giving thanks to God. Okay. You see, as we turn back to Genesis now, we must understand this fact that we are to be a people of praise, a people that are reliant upon God that we are created in His image to worship Him, and that these bodies that we are now in were formed of the dust, and to the dust they will return. Okay? So thus far, in Genesis, as it pertains to you and me, this is what we have seen. We are spiritual beings created in the image of God, and we are physical, and these bodies of ours will return to the dust. But verse 7 continues here in Genesis 2 and tells us a little bit more about ourselves, right? And says that after God formed the, the man of the dust, right, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. 
Now, I'll tell you, I personally like the way the original King James, the old King James version translates this here. And it says, and man became a living soul. The Hebrew word for soul there is the word nephesh, right? And it's a word that means soul, person, appetite, mind, uh, desire, emotion, and passion. Okay? That's what soul is defined as the word nefesh, the Hebrew word, right? Appetite, mind, living being, desire, emotion, and passion. So we are a spirit created in the image of God. We have this body that's formed of the dust. Someday we'll return to the dust. But we also have this soul, this mind, this appetite, this desire, this emotional part of us, this passionate part of us that we are to live with, right? And do you see how it all comes together? Three parts to us, but one being. But we are complete only when all three parts of us operate as God intended for us to, right? Spiritually seeking and relying upon our Creator in whose image we have been made. And as a body formed of the dust, we are not to rely upon our own physical abilities, as a, and as a soul, we are to fix our minds, our emotions, our passions on our Creator, okay? And focus them on Him by worshiping Him and praising Him, not only just in song like we've done this morning, but in the way we live our everyday life, recognizing Him and placing Him first in, in every aspect of our lives, okay? We are not made to be independent of God but rather dependent upon him. And, and I've quoted Job to you this morning who realized that. And we've looked at David there in the psalm who realized that. And this is God's word being pointed out to us that we need to live this way. Okay? And all of this we see from the beginning of creation, right? And, and moving on in verse 8, I'm back in Genesis chapter 2, right? The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So God created the man, and he had a place where he intended man to be, and that is in the Garden of Eden. The Hebrew word for Eden is the word Eden, right? It's just pronounced slightly different than, than we do in English. But the word Eden is a word that means pleasure. Man was placed on the east side of Eden in a, in a place called pleasure, right? And now we'll see that God is going to provide for that man all that that man needs. Verse 9, And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we see here trees that are pleasant to look upon and also produce good food. These trees would feed man in the garden. Then there is the tree of life in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life is a tree that if man ate from it, they would have lived forever in this body of dust. This would have not been a good thing, nor was it God's intention that we would live in a body of dust forever. But how do I know that if man ate of this tree that he would live forever. Well, I see that in the Word of God. Just turn up one chapter to chapter 3 of Genesis. 
Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. We haven't got to that part of the story yet. I'm kind of fast forwarding here. But he says, Behold, man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Okay? So that's how I know if he would have eaten from the tree of life, he would have lived forever in that body of dust, right? So we'll talk about that verse more in the future, but that's how we know that fact. But you know, God still has the tree of life prepared for us, and we will indeed live forever. How do I know that? Well, we studied it recently, but turn to Revelation, mark this page, and turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. And let's look at verse 7. Revelation 2, 7. It says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So the tree of life will be there for us to eat from in the future. And where is this tree? Well, first of all, we see here that it's in the midst of the paradise of God, but also turn up to Revelation chapter 22. So this same tree of life that was in there, there in the beginning in the Garden of Eden, we're going to see in heaven. Okay, Revelation 22, I'll point that out to you here, starting in verse 1. Revelation 22.1, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its streets on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So the tree of life will be in the new Jerusalem also known as heaven, right? And we've studied about that recently. So we see that God did indeed intend for man to live in forever, but he did not intend for us to live forever in these bodies of dust that we are now in. And, and the story is going to unfold as we continue to go through Genesis and as we continue to go through the whole Bible, okay? But the tree of life was in the Garden of Eden, and the tree of life will be in heaven as well. And back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 10. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first was Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedulam and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hidekel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. So, 
as I was studying for this week's teaching, I began to look at all of the geographical explanations for the Garden of Eden, and they're endless. There's a lot of geographical explanations for it, and there's also a lot of disputes over it, where it was, right? And I invite you to take some time, if you feel so inclined, to study all of that geography for yourself, because I do not dismiss the validity of such a study. I just don't yeah, I don't think it's valuable for us Sunday morning to go into a study like that on all the geography, at least not for this teaching. It's not the way the Lord has led me. And there's other things I want to cover here. But I think that when we gather on Sunday mornings like this, that we need to be exhorted and encouraged to draw closer to the Lord in our walks through this earth, right? And studying the geography of the Bible is not to me, the best way to utilize our time on Sunday mornings. But I'm just saying all of this to encourage you to do that on your own. And you can do that, right? But again, I just don't think I'm going to take that route this morning. So I don't underestimate its importance. But my calling for this brief time that we are together on Sunday mornings is to teach you the Word of God in an exhortational way that will hopefully lead you to desire more of the Word of God and to dig deeper yourself. Because I think it's a tragedy if people gather around one person, a pastor, a Bible teacher, and that becomes their all in all. And, and, and that becomes their only feeding in the Word of God like I've talked about in the past, right? We need to take time to dig deeper ourselves. And I just kind of want to, you know, give an exhortational message on Sunday morning. So I'm giving a long explanation as to why I'm not going to talk about where the... <laughs> where the Garden of Eden was located geographically. But you can study all of that on your own. But moving on, verse 15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. So we see here that man was given responsibility by God right from the beginning. He wasn't just going to sit around under a fruit tree and do nothing. There was work to do even before the fall of mankind. See, a lot of people think of work as only being the curse, right? But work is not a curse. It is a blessing. And work is something that God himself is an example of. We saw the work of God that he did in creation. And we saw how everything that God did, he saw it and he took pleasure in it. He said, that's good. Every time he created something, wow, that's good, right? So God took pleasure in his work and then he gave man some work to do as well. We talked about last week how God has revealed himself to the, to the world in what is called his handiwork. David said that in Psalm 19. He said, when I consider your handiwork, right? The sun, the moon, and the stars revealed the work of God, and they reveal the work of God today. If you look up the Hebrew word uh, for the words tend here and the word keep, two words tend and keep there in verse 15, the word for ten means to foster growth and improve. And the word for keep means to maintain and preserve from failure and decline. So we are indeed responsible to work and care for God's creation. We are to foster growth and to improve it. We are to maintain and preserve it from failure and decline. Okay, now we know that we haven't got to that part yet here in Genesis, the fall. We haven't got to the part of the curse yet. 
But I'm saying God's original intention for mankind was to tend and to keep what God had given him, right? So, and we'll see as we get to Genesis chapter 3, 17, that work did indeed become a lot harder as a result of the fall of mankind. But again, work in and of itself is something that God intended for us as mankind. And verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Okay, now there's something here that we need to take note of. Notice that this command by God to not eat of this tree was given to Adam. Eve was not yet created. Eve was not yet here. And this was given to Adam. Adam was the one that received this command from God. And Adam was ultimately responsible for obeying this command. Though we'll see later that he tried to pass pass the blame onto Eve, right? That woman you gave me, he told God, right? Verse 18, though, says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. So um, we'll go into more detail on how all this came about in just a few moments here. But the thing of great importance to us here is that God in his infinite wisdom knew that man needed someone to help him out through this life. Someone to come alongside of him and be a helper for him. This is what God saw. And this is what God knew that man needed in this life. And we'll expound on this a little bit more. But let's read on verse 19. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. So animals, of course, are a great help for mankind in tending to and keeping this earth. But they were not what Adam needed personally. Animals do a lot of good for mankind, but they do not fulfill man in his earthly purpose. At the end of verse 20 there, we see... um, that for Adam himself, amongst all that had been created, there was not a helper for him. So God did something about this. And verse 21 tells us what God did. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. So God performed the first surgery under anesthesiology here, right? This is where man got that whole idea from. We have a seven-day week, too, that we got that whole idea from God. And the process for performing surgery under deep sleep, right? Right? Except that God didn't need stitches, and he didn't leave a scar. Okay? His work is perfect. Verse 22. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Now, of course, I can't take credit for this quote, but it's been often said, and I would totally agree with it, that woman was taken out of a man, not out of his head to top him, nor out of his feet to be trampled underfoot, 
but out of his side to be his helper and from under his arm to be protected by him and from near to his heart to be loved by him. You see, God made man very different for a reason. Men and women are different. Their roles are, were never intended by God from the beginning to be exactly the same. In a marriage, there is a role for a man. And there is a role for a woman in a marriage. The woman was made specifically for the man and not the other way around. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus says, Have you not read that he made them at the beginning, that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh, Jesus said. Therefore, Jesus said, God, what God has joined together, let not man separate. But you see, today, unfortunately, mankind likes to separate male and female in a marriage, meaning they encourage the wife to be her own separate person and the husband to be his own separate person. But God never intended that from the very beginning. Jesus pointed that out, that God made them different, male and female, for a purpose, for a reason. Okay, He created both male and female, and the female was made to be a helper for the male, and the male was made to be fully committed to the female. And we're going to see that. Okay? He was made to be fully committed to the female. And this is why a man needs to be a spiritual leader in the home. It's not wrong for a woman to be strong spiritually, for she too is created in the image of God. You know, Adam's bone, his rib that God removed, did not have the breath of life in it. Right? We already saw in Genesis 1.27, but go ahead and just look back there real quick. Genesis 1.27, because this is an important point when discussing male and female. Okay, Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So both male and and female are created in the image of God. The male was not the one that gave life to the female. God did. And she is every bit created in the image of God as a man is. But as it pertains to the flesh, and remember how we've looked at that, who we are as a soul, as a body, as a spirit, right? And as it, as it pertains to this physical flesh of ours, this body of dust, this temporary life that we have on this earth, God created the woman physically from the man. And the man is the one that received the command from God as what to do and what not to do. Okay, We will see that the first mistake of mankind was for the woman not to be in submission to the man and for the man to not be there spiritually overseeing the woman, but allowing for Satan to come in to that marriage, for allowing for Satan to enter that. The man's responsible for that as well. But the woman, if she was submitted to the man, 
right? And this is what God intended. And as we get into the New Testament, we see that in God's word, right? It's the way it's supposed to be, right? And don't get confused here as we talk about male and female because we're not talking about mental capacity or abilities, right? The woman who is also created in the image of God can just as easily as the man use her mind, use her will, use her emotions, be strong spiritually, and do many things. Women have the ability today to start companies. Women have the ability today to make important decisions because, again, they're created in the image of of God. But spiritually speaking, the man is to take the lead. This is just the order that God has established. The direction of the family, be it just husband and wife or be it husband and wife and children, it's very simple though. There's a a very pure ebb and flow to this relationship that God has laid out for us in his word. And though the woman is created in the image of God, She, in obedience to God, submits to her husband. Again, she's created in the image of God, but out of obedience to him, she submits to her husband, right? The husband is to be in obedience to God and love his wife and lay down his life for the wife, as the scripture tells us, right? Submission, so therefore, submission by the woman is an act of reverence for God. And the man loving the woman and leading her spiritually, protecting her physically, laying down his life is an act of reverence for God by the man. A woman is, you know, a woman is not weak that that submits to her husband's spiritual lead. To the contrary, she is strong in the fact that she is yielding away her ability to do something. And again, she's submitting. And that, that's, an, that's a, a work to do. That's not always easy to do in our flesh, right, for a woman, okay? But out of reverence to God, she does that. Why? Because his word says so. Because God says so, and she decides to do it. And a man isn't weak when he shows love and affection and compassion to his wife. To the contrary, he is strong because in reverence of God, he is obediently living the way that Jesus Christ lived his life here. Jesus was a man of compassion and of love, right? And we're to love our wives. A man is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Okay? How did Christ, does God, does Jesus have compassion on our lives? Does he give us mercy? Does he love us, right? So this is how a husband is to love his wife. So it's not a sign of weakness when we as husbands do that toward our wives, nor is it a sign of weakness when a wife submits to her husband in reverence to God. It's really not all that complicated, right? Is a husband treating his wife like a a weaker vessel, chauvinistic? No, it's not. It's obedient to God. Is a woman in reverence to God, submitting to her husband, a sign of weakness? No, it's not. It's it's submission, right? It simply demonstrates that we know that God knows best. And it simply demonstrates that we want to live in a way that God, the creator, designed for us to live. You know, I don't demand my wife to worship me, nor do I think she's less of a human being than me. But I'm thankful that she loves God enough to obey his word and be submissive to me. 
I'm not Lord of her life, right? But I do step up in obedience to God and lead her through this life. And, and let me tell you, it's not easy. None of what I'm saying comes easy to the flesh. It's contrary to our flesh, but we're to die to our flesh. How often? Daily. Take up the cross daily and say, Lord, I'm not going to live the way I want to live today. I'm not going to live the way I as a man want to be. And a woman needs to say, oh, I'm not going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do what you want me to do. And then when we do this, right, there is unity. And then there's, there's a blessing upon the home that takes place as well because the children see this and are blessed, that they see a strong unity and they, they see this commitment and they long for that in their lives, okay? I know how blessed I am with the gift of a wife. And Adam knew the same thing. And in verse 23, he says, And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So she, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So this man, Adam here, he knew that this woman was a gift to him from God. Right? And I think we need to put some passion in those words as we read them as Adam says this. You know, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. You know, this is the way I picture Adam being thankful for this gift of a woman. And marriage is to be honored. Hebrews 13.4 says that very specifically. It says marriage is honorable among all. The world around us can dishonor marriage all that it wants. But if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are a follower of the Word of God, and you are to live in obedience to the Word of God, and you are to honor your marriage, and you are to teach your children to do the same. Men need to be the man that God commands you to be. And women, you need to be the woman that God tells you to be. Because you'll find peace in doing this. You'll find order. You'll find contentment. You'll find that everything works the way it's supposed to work because that's how God created it to be. And here's one way to honor marriage. Verse 24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So in the wedding vows, most of the time we say something like, forsaking all others. That's part of the wedding vows in most ceremonies, right? Forsaking all others. And what we mean by this is that is there is to be no other person that we will be affectionate towards above this person. God made one woman for one man. That's it. One woman, one man. Don't need a whole bunch of other people involved in this. Don't need anyone else involved in this. It's to be honorable, right? And we're to show affection and, and, and keep that relationship pure. Neither father nor mother. See, it mentions leaving father and mother here, right? And, and father and mother shouldn't interfere in a relationship between a husband and wife. But I've seen so many problems in marriage where the man's mom is too involved in the marriage or the, ma the woman's mom or whatever is too involved in the marriage. And, and the woman won't let go of her family. And these things are, are such a cause for division in a marriage because marriage is to be sanctified sanctified means set apart we're honoring it it's these two people 
coming together as one. And it's been wrongly said, and I've heard other pastors say it, but I disagree with it, that you marry into a family. That's not biblical at all. A man marries a woman, a woman marries a man, and the two of them are then one, right? No outside interference with others in that marriage. There's one way to honor This right here is one way to honor the marriage, and both the male and the female need to be committed to each other in this way. Now this, I'm not saying you you don't have a relationship with your in-laws, right? I'm just simply saying what the Bible tells us is that we honor this marriage. We we, we hold it as, as a holy matrimony. And what's the word holy mean? Set apart. That's why we call marriage a holy matrimony, because it's a set-apart thing, right? And we we take great honor in it, okay? Now, I could actually, as I did this, and I know we're going long here today, we can expand on the topic of marriage for hours and hours, but I just want, that's why I said I kind of wanted to cut through the geographical part of it and get to this meaty part, because... I want to exhort you to honor marriage, right? Because from the very beginning, God created marriage to be honorable. And we see the degradation of this in our society today, right? Cheapening marriage and, and, saying, and, and making it something that God never intended it to be, okay? But we're, we're not to look at the Bible and say, oh, that's archaic, Because it's not, because Jesus Christ, first of all, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God never changes. His word never changes. It means today what it meant then. And we're to honor the word of God and live in in this way. And as a man, be a man of God. And as a woman, be a woman of God. And this is the challenge that I take in my life on a daily basis. And again, I'll be the first to tell you that it's not always been easy. There's, there's, there's always a, a, a spiritual battle that goes on when you make a decision to say, I'm going to live in accordance with the Word of God. Sometimes all hell breaks loose. When you say, I'm going to, we're going to do this, we're going to focus on this, and then distractions come, right? Uh, we're going to focus on the Word of God, and then boom, everything else falls apart. But you've got to fight the fight. Paul called it a, a fight. Faith is a fight, right? So we've got to stay the course. We've got to focus on this thing. I'm going to Take verse 25. I know it's weird, but I'm going to not cover it today. I believe that it should go in with going into chapter 3. So we're going to stop here for today and let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your holy word. God, we thank you for how your word is profitable to us, Lord, for instruction in righteousness. It's profitable to us, Lord, for correction, for rebuke. Lord, it, it, it does a work within us that, that no other words can do, Lord. It's a living and active word, sharper than any two-edged sword, and, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our hearts, Lord. And as we've looked at your word today, Lord, we know that your word has looked at us. We know that your word has examined us, Lord. And we pray that we will respond correctly to your word that we would desire from this day going forward into this new week, Lord, to to live our lives for your glory, Lord, to, to be obedient to your word, to be men, to be women of God, Lord, to, to desire to do the things that your word instructs us to do. We pray you'd pour out your spirit upon us, Lord. 
We thank you for this time of fellowship around your word. In Jesus' name, amen.